World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For those who do it well, reading comes so naturally that it's easy to forget how it's learned. Opinions vary on how best to teach it, but research clearly points to an approach called phonics. So why is it so rarely used in America? And we take a look at a London film festival dedicated to movies mostly shot using smartphones. Increasingly snazzy cameras in phones are changing what kinds of films get made and may even supplant some of Hollywood's trucks full of kit. First up, though. As I address you this evening, the situation has gotten worse. Along with many other countries on our continent, Africa, South Africa is seeing a massive resurgence of infections. Last night, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa announced new restrictions for the next two weeks after the country recorded nearly 15,000 new COVID-19 cases on Saturday. A curfew will be in place from 9 p.m. to 4 a.m. and all non-essential establishments will need to close by 8 p.m. South Africa isn't alone. The whole continent is suffering from a devastating resurgence of COVID-19. The World Health Organization is warning Africa not to get complacent in the fight against COVID. Within the last three weeks, the number of new daily cases in Uganda has increased dramatically. The Africa CDC is concerned about the cases being reported in Kenya, Ethiopia and Sudan. At least 19 other countries are in the middle of a third wave and their health systems are overwhelmed. In countries such as Namibia, Uganda and Zambia, oxygen is running out. Hospital beds are full. And with vaccines in short supply, there's no easy way out. In the early months of the pandemic, it was common to hear that Africa had somehow been spared the worst of COVID-19. John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa correspondent and is based in South Africa. People speculated about whether that might be due to the continent's youthful demographics, its history of dealing with this infectious disease, or perhaps something else entirely, such as an underlying immunity. However, the premise was always shaky. We always knew far too little about what was really going on on the continent. And it looks increasingly shaky now that Africa is in the middle of a particularly grim third wave. And what's the situation like now where you are in South Africa? Things here are pretty bleak. Hospitals in Johannesburg are full. Ambulances drive around looking for beds. And doctors are having to make life or death decisions about who gets a spot on an ICU ward. As one doctor told me over the weekend, it's real who gets the last parachute time. 
And how does the situation in South Africa compare with elsewhere on the continent? Africa's third wave has been driven by events in southern and central Africa, at least at the moment. So you're seeing rapidly rising cases, not just in South Africa, but also in other southern African countries such as Namibia and Zambia. In central Africa too, cases are escalating. So Uganda and Congo, for example, are reporting very high numbers. Elsewhere, it's a patchy picture, but generally speaking, West and East Africa have not seen the worst of the third wave. And North Africa, where a higher share of populations are vaccinated, is showing relatively small numbers at present. And so why is this third wave so bad? The World Health Organization points to a couple of reasons. The first is public fatigue. Africans, like people everywhere, are fed up with COVID. But unlike people everywhere else, there's really no sign that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So a real sense of fatalism has crept in in many countries. And that's leading people to forgo wearing masks and to stop socially distancing. The other reason is the rise of variants. Not every African country can do genomic sequencing of viruses, but those that can show that we have not just the alpha and beta variants, but in at least a quarter of countries, the rapidly spreading delta variant as well. And how have African governments responded to this third wave? Well, in part because of the public fatigue, governments have been reluctant to reimpose some of the harsh restrictions that they did in the early months of the pandemic. But the strength of the third wave driven by the variants has forced many to do so, including Rwanda, Uganda and South Africa. But it's been far too late, at least in the case of South Africa. And the government here has done far too little to prepare the health system for what has just hit it. Take Johannesburg, the city's biggest public hospital, closed in April because of a fire. Dithering bureaucrats and politicians, though, have ensured that it's not even open, and that is adding to the chaos that you're seeing in hospitals across the city. Outside of South Africa, in Tanzania, for example, a new president is in, replacing the late John Magafuli, but she's having to deal with the legacy of not taking the pandemic seriously. So while I think it was fair to say that African governments had done quite well in the early months of the pandemic, they're really, really struggling to get a grip on this third wave. And what about the, the state of vaccinations? There has been far too little vaccination on the continent. While people in the rich world are perhaps grumbling about the extra paperwork required to go on their foreign holiday, just over 1% of Africans have been fully vaccinated, and most of them are in North Africa. Of the almost 3 billion doses of vaccines administered across the world, less than 2% of those have been done in Africa. And while there is hesitancy here, as there is hesitancy everywhere around the world, the biggest issue is supply. Increasingly, countries are using up the meagre stocks they're getting from COVAX, the international consortium. And although orders have been placed for hundreds of millions of doses, the sad fact is, these are just not going to arrive in anywhere near enough volumes this year and perhaps not even in the first half of next year. And so how do you see that playing out? Do you have a sense for when uh, supplies will, will match demand? Africa CDC, the continent-wide public health body, wants to vaccinate 60% of the continent by the end of 2022. That looks like a tall order. 
there's also been some promising developments around setting up mRNA vaccine manufacturing capacity in South Africa. But it's unlikely that those will start producing any doses until the second half of next year. So it really does look like Africa is at the back of the queue and will remain so for a long time to come. John Ekengasong, the head of Africa CDC, has repeatedly warned that unless his vaccination target is met, the virus will become endemic in Africa. That warning has so far gone unheeded, and it looks increasingly likely that COVID-19 becomes a fact of life on the continent for years to come. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Psychotomimetic. Consanguineous. Pulchritidinous. If you come across an unfamiliar word on the page, try sounding it out. Oh, I think I got it. I hate this one. That might seem like simple enough advice for any reader, old or young. But until recently, it was a radical idea in American schools. For many decades, schools have used a reading strategy known as whole language. It treats learning to read similarly to how we learn to speak. Tamara Jilkes-Bohr is The Economist's U.S. policy correspondent. When we learn to speak, we learn in an immersive environment, such as our homes. Or if you learn later in life, you might actually go to a country that speaks that language and fully immerse yourself in that experience. So how does this learning through immersion work when it comes to reading? So an example of this is if a student is reading a sentence, such as the writer leapt onto the back of a, and they're stuck on the word horse. A teacher trained in whole language would tell the student to use clues. If there's a picture of a horse, they can use that. They can use the spelling of the word. So knowing it starts with an H gives them a clue that it might be the word horse. So overall, it's this idea that a student can learn to read and identify unfamiliar words through the immersive experience and the context clues within reading. Right. So if you don't know a word, take a guess based on the context. I mean, what's wrong with that? It doesn't work very well, particularly for struggling readers. So for many people, they will learn to read regardless of a teaching style. But for students at the margins, this is not the best way to learn particularly students with dyslexia, for example, or other learning struggles. Research has shown in the last few decades, particularly starting in the 1990s, that it is much more effective to teach students using phonics. So phonics is the idea that you are breaking down words into their sounds. 
So if you've learned, for example, to read the word cat and you were told that C is K and A is A and T is T and then you sound it together, then you've had a little bit of phonics. This method is much more successful in helping struggling readers learn to read. But yet you say the whole language approach is the dominant one in American schools. Why is that if the research points so clearly towards phonics? Whole language appeals to the way we think we learn to read. Reading can feel like it just happened naturally through osmosis. It feels like you just learn to read the way that you learn to speak. It also, quite honestly, is a bit jarring as an educator to realize that the way that you've been teaching previously was not the proper way. The result is a bit of a reading battle where you have phonics on one side and whole language on the other. And to bring everyone together, a theory developed called balanced literacy. It's a mashup of the two styles. You have whole language with a little bit of phonics, but research shows that this is ineffective. You can't just sprinkle in a little bit of phonics and then move on. Unfortunately, about three out of four teachers in America teach balanced literacy. Are there any school districts, any states that are getting it right in terms of just aiming for phonics in a purer sense? Yes. In 2013, the Mississippi State Legislature passed new literacy standards that included phonics, along with other measures like having reading coaches in low-performing schools. And they have seen incredible literacy gains. Their fourth graders have moved from 49th out of 50 states in national rankings to 29th in only six years. And with results like that, you would imagine other states would follow Mississippi's lead. Yes. So we are seeing many other states starting to include phonics, Alabama, Tennessee, Florida, North Carolina just recently passed legislation. What's really interesting is like many issues in America right now, this literacy debate has become quite partisan. In this instance, the Republicans seem to be led by the science. We're seeing that the shift toward phonics tends to be in Republican-led states. And so what is it that the Democrats have against phonics? So often, like in Mississippi, there is a phonics push, but there's also a part of the bill that includes retention. So if a student in the third grade, for example, doesn't reach reading proficiency, then they would be held back and remain in that third grade level until they do achieve proficiency. But that only works if the students and the teachers have support and are in fact able and given the opportunity to learn to read. So Democratic politicians are worried that implementing these policies poorly will negatively impact the most vulnerable students, mainly students of color and low-income students. So where does this end up then? If the results are so clear, the experiments in Republican-led states continue to succeed, but there is this resistance, where does the balance fall, do you think? We have to be based in the science. So focusing on phonics and other reading strategies that are proven to be successful is the absolute way to go. But we also have to be realistic and understand that we can't just tell teachers to teach phonics and then not support them in how to properly teach phonics. 
we also need to make sure that we are providing the funding and other resources so that teachers and students aren't left behind. Thanks very much for your time, Tamara. Oh, thank you. The first edition of a new genre of film festivals just wrapped up. The London International Smartphone Film Festival screened films like The Lost Pen by Turkish director Berat Gökish. It tells the story of, well, a lost pen. And Dawn Heist by filmmaker Neil Walsh is about two toddlers who get up early in order to raid the kitchen. And in the short film One Year, director Kitty Camilleri captures the account of an ICU doctor over the past year. I remember all this light streaming in, every single nurse in PPE, the nurses being the only ones who were conscious, everybody really quiet because they were so focused, and every single patient being unconscious on a ventilator. The festival was launched to celebrate a new kind of filmmaking, or a newly professionalized one anyway, that has the potential to revolutionize the industry. The London International Smartphone Film Festival has had entries from all over the world. There's documentaries, there's thrillers and dramas. Nicholas Barber writes about arts and culture for The Economist. They're all different. The linking factor in all of them is that they're all shot on phones, all shot on the kind of smartphone that we all have. How did this festival come to be? The festival is the brainchild of two people, Victoria Mapplebeck and Adam G. Now, Victoria is a documentary maker. She was what they call a self-shooting documentary maker, which means that uh, she would pack all her equipment into a suitcase, she'd go around the world, she'd make documentaries. Then, in her words, she became a broke single mum, which meant that she could no longer afford to fly around the world. She could no longer work long hours into the night and at the weekends. So she felt that she'd been basically kicked out of the industry. She didn't really know how she could carry on making the kind of documentaries she'd been making. And the sort of DIY punk spirit of smartphone filmmaking was perfect for me because... You know, it's not a very forgiving industry, the film or TV industry, when you do step out. She kept filming herself and documenting her daily life on her phone. And this uh, then led her to making a special kind of documentary about her day-to-day life. Hello. My son Jim is nearly 14. He hasn't seen his dad since he was two. Yes, go, lads. He wants to know more about him, maybe to meet him again. Can you hear this? This film, uh, which became Missed Call, was a short documentary which was produced by Adam G. And it went on to win a BAFTA, uh, a television BAFTA. It was the first film shot on a phone to win a BAFTA. So Adam and Victoria thought this was quite a big thing, a big deal, uh, a breakthrough. So then they thought it was time to set up a film festival to promote this kind of filmmaking, to encourage this type of filmmaking. And so do you think there will be a wider influence here of, of smartphone filmmaking on the industry more broadly? Yes, Adam and Victoria are great believers that this is the future of filmmaking. Not that it will be that every film that we'll be watching will be made on smartphones, but what they believe is that the quality of the footage you can get on smartphones now, the quality of the recording and the cheapness of the software that it takes to edit these films and put them together means that the world has really changed 
And it doesn't matter. They didn't have to go to some fancy film school or some posh university. If they've got a story to tell and they've got talent, they can do it on a zero budget. And I, I just think that's fantastic. And it will really, it will really help to transform some of the problems that we've got with the creative industries in terms of gender diversity and inclusion. But what about the established industry? Is, is it going to turn to, to smartphones to get rid of those truckloads of kit? Big name filmmakers, Hollywood filmmakers ha- have had a crack at this. Um, Steven Soderbergh has always been a big proponent of new technology and he has made two feature films, Unsane and High Flying Bird, just shot on iPhones. My stalker is here. We did a thorough background check. You should be protecting me. And uh, they look good, you know, they really work. They, you don't watch them thinking, oh, this is a bit strange. They actually work as feature films. Adam is very much of the opinion of that. Actually, this is the wrong question. Really, never mind about Hollywood. If you want to see really interesting smartphone filmmaking, you've got to look at TikTok. You've got to look at social media, look at YouTube. And that's where some really great filmmaking is being done. So it's not really about breaking into the industry. It's not really about the, the old dinosaurs using this new technology. It's about new, young talent circumventing that whole world. Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.